Welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace High Above 3773 East Broadway. This is a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live, download our free app, and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And without further ado, I want to bring in a a woman who has been has had a decorated career, somebody who has advocated for melodic improvisation her whole life uh, with her um, late husband, Stan Getz, and also somebody who's committed to advocacy for spouses who have been through relationships that have been less than ideal. And um, she is a, comes from a, a, an amazing family of royalty uh, in Europe. And uh, it's really an honor to connect with her. Monica Getz, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. Nice to connect with you, my friend. You know, playing that piece of music just brought him right, right back to me. Do you, that was from, now I was going to ask you, that, that was an album that um, I actually recently found. Um, it was recorded in 1963. Uh, it was Bill Evans and Stan Getz. That tune was but beautiful, obviously. But um, And then Elvin Jones, Ron Carter uh, uh, as the rhythm section. And that wasn't actually released on record till 1974. Um, but just to have the two of those cats, um, Bill and, and, and Stan together, is, uh, is beautiful. And, I, you know, I kind of wanted to just start there. You know, I wanted to – you were a, a graduate student – at Georgetown, and I wanted you to talk about that the first time that you actually heard Stan play and 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 what stood out to you at that time. Yeah, you know that what you just said it sums up so many things about Stan and the record industry here. They had this gem of a piece of music, and it was made in '63, which was probably um, one of Stan's peak peak years, and it wasn't released until 1974. Uh, exactly. That's one, it, it's just astonishing to me, and here stands very favorites, Elvin and Ron and Bill Evans. What more can you ask, you know? I mean, to me, it's, it's like, I, I found it on vinyl, the reissue, and it's like, one of the things that's written about is that is that Stan played great. Bill apparently they, but the critics kind of panned Bill's performance. I don't understand. I can't hear it. Everybody sounds like they're having a ball. But they yet, did. you know, but but it was like I mean, the whole album just cooks. Um, and it was even before Stan became an international star. So it's, it's like it's just very special stuff. I mean, these guys were like, to me, they were uh, well, T Garden and Bird and those cats uh, going back. They were maybe the original masters. But I mean, Stan and 
and Bill were right at the source of the music, you know. You know, I went to such an interesting thing last night. I'm sort of set up for this interview because <laughs> of that um, lecture that I heard, interestingly enough, um, at a Buddhist center huh. um, about four minutes away from me, and it was on the arts and the history of culture and thinking about the arts, and the conclusion of that was more or less the following, that genius is almost always created by something that this lecturer had made up, um, a word called senius, meaning that there are certain groups of geniuses that get together when they are unpretentious and poor and hungry. And uh, he was describing it then in terms of Paris and Hemingway and Alice B. Tarkless and all of that going on in Paris. And at the end, I thought of Birdland. There's a reason I'm mentioning that, because you asked me how I first saw Stan, and that was Birdland All-Stars in 1955 when I was at um, Georgetown University studying international affairs. And Birdland was one of those places where after they did their gigs, they would get together, Diz, Miles, Bird, and Stan, the little sliver of a kid, mm -hmm. and just play their hearts out jam sessions that so seldom is done now because everything is about money and tickets and rock stars and um, other things. But all that mattered to these wonderful, beautiful, giant musicians, but also giants, um, giants of intelligence, really, they were. Um, and that cauldron of how er they all sparked off each other. Um, that was just a mind-blowing thing, and I think all of them went out and influenced and changed the world through their music. They, they weren't always articulate. So happens that both Dizzy and Miles and Stan um, and Bird were very articulate, but it came through in the music. And I met Stan um, at the Birdland All-Stars in Washington, D.C., at the... Um, armory and I was studying like a fiend because I was here on a scholarship in Sweden you weren't allowed to leave the country unless you got some kind of a scholarship because they didn't want the money coming out of, of Sweden so um, I came here on a scholarship and studied like crazy and I did not really want to be distracted by going to a concert and I had two people in my class who said you have to come to this they were doing interviews for um, Georgetown, I think, some kind of radio station there. And so they said, if we have free tickets, come. And so I came. And on the list of that, I just happened to have a flyer in front of me um, from another event that was similar to this. Um, it was called the Birdland Tour. This one happened to be from the Brooklyn Paramount Theater, but it was in the same kind of a, um, period and they had Count Basie, which also they had in, in Washington, mm. George Shearing, Errol Garner, Stan, and Lester Young. And 
I had been away from Sweden when Stan had been to Sweden um, and created a minor sensation there. And so I wasn't aware of that at all. And two things puzzled me so much about that concert, aside from the fact that the music, Saravon or um, I think it was Donna Washington, were on the bill too. And of all these wonderful giants that were playing, Stan got a standing ovation without playing a note, and I couldn't figure that out. And it wasn't until much, much later that I heard from somebody that that was an encouragement uh, because he had just come out of jail. I had no clue about that. So just to to set the – you are, by the way, by all accounts – a brilliant person in your own right, um, and what you just—I oh, don't think we have to go that far. No, but no, what, I was what, I, what I'm a saying, searching person. No, but you know what I'm saying is you articulated that beautifully. But the the this is the this is the situation where uh, Stan held up the drugstore in Seattle, and he had just got yeah. okay. So he had that was on that was on another tour. Just for the audience, there was a bus ride. Stan was. Um, heavily addicted to heroin and he uh held up a drugstore and wound up trying to actually take his own life um and, uh, well, and I, I can go into that a little more because there are a lot of misconceptions about go that. ahead please um well you know for just for the audience i have since then learned so much about addictions um that i can speak knowledgeably about what i believe actually happened then in those days uh, in California, it was illegal just to be um, using drugs, not just to buy and sell, but to be used drugs. Mm-hmm. So there was no way that somebody could go to a doctor and say, you know, I have a drug addiction and I'd like to get clean. I'd like to. There were no rehabs. There was something called synonym that was a very big problem in itself, but it was. And AA was not so well known then and was um, misunderstood um, in so many ways the wisdom of AA so uh, very few people went to that it was stigmatized but uh, Stan really really wanted to get off drugs and um, had nowhere to turn basically and what happened is that um, his wife at the time, Beverly, a lovely person, also a lost soul and, and a singer, a very good singer at that time, um, were both addicted. And the addiction was rampant in the music business, mostly because of ignorance. No one really, everyone thought that old myth that, you know, you can be more creative and you can play better. And um, Stan, I think, got involved with drugs already at um, on Benny Goodman's um, band. No, with uh, Woody Herman's band. Woody Herman's band, yes. Yeah, that's right. Mm, he was already involved. Um, I won't mention name, but I know who suggested to him that he even get involved in it. And uh, that person is a famous musician, and he never knew what r- havoc he uh, wreaked on Stan's life because of it. But that was a random thing. Everyone was ignorant. Uh, Stan was a very, very young person for his age to be part of those big boys. And Jack Teagarden, of course, was heavily alcoholic, but nobody 
thought that you could be alcoholic and be functioning. In fact, 98% of alcoholics function and are very high functioning in the daytime. And they go home and become crazy at night. Well, is it, I mean, isn't that the definition of an alcoholic? Is somebody who can operate normally under a heavy amount of alcohol? I mean, that's really what it is. Yeah, but eventually, eventually, you know, the body breaks down and, and their behavior becomes so bizarre that they can't keep a job. But that's 2% that we see that behave in that way. They end up looking like red skeletons sleeping under the bridge. But that was my image of an mm -hmm. alcoholic. Absolutely. I could never imagine Absolutely. that an alcoholic could be young and handsome and successful. That was not <laughs> in my vocabulary. Right. So, so I had no clue about any of this. Even though I was a doctor's daughter and coming from a very highly educated family and a very highly educated country, which Sweden was. So anyway... Um, Go back it's to the, back I, I, I'm sorry, to you riffed on that. You were just talking about he got a standing ovation. At the time, you didn't yeah. understand why because he hadn't played a note yet. So then when he did yeah. play, yeah. what hit you at that? What was that feeling when he started to play the, those, those melody lines? Well, you see, I was a little familiar with Stan because in Sweden, and I don't want to lose where we were because I was going to explain about the robbery and the... It's store, okay. we, got, we got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. You don't worry. That. You don't worry. <laughs> okay, because um, it, it is interesting to know what really happened there. Um, so, what was your question now? When I what struck me? Okay. Yeah, when you first I, when you when, I, when he I when he was was when, not unfamiliar with jazz, and I was not unfamiliar with Stan. I was just unfamiliar with the fact that while I was in America, he had been in Sweden and had a wonderful. Uh, uh, sort of a mind-altering experience in Sweden because that was the first time that he got off drugs for a long time and he will never forget it. So he was predisposed towards Sweden before I even met him that night. I just wanted to say that. And when I sat in the audience, he played like an angel. He, he really played beautifully. But even drunk, he could do that. Uh, I didn't, he wasn't. He happened to have been scared straight after that um, jail experience. So he was clean and sober, um, looked sort of like a Harvard medical student, <laughs> extremely shy. Um, Charlie Bush of, uh, Charlie, uh, of um, George Wien's office, who was eclectic in his taste, had just taken him the night before to something called the Ivy League shop. And so he was in the tweeds and in the uh, penny loafers and, and um, yeah, Harvard medical student he looked like, uh, glasses, very studious, and extremely shy. This was the period when Miles and Stan, all of these who fancied themselves being leaders of a new movement, sort of played uh, with the stain of the audience and put their back towards the audience kind of. Wow. And and wow, um, wow! So I just want to the shame of financial success. They would never. Um, a, that was not in their in their radar screen. Can you? I just this is because you were uh, you're you were knowledgeable. You knew jazz going in. I I did. I was I was under the impression that Stan. This is during '55. Stan was already turning his back. These guys were already turning their backs on the audience. I thought it was more like early '60s, but you're saying at that time they were still. No, this was. It, it, it started before then because I had seen it in Sweden. Wow. Um, it, you know, I'm so old that I remember almost. Um, well, you have a great memory. <laughs> you have a great memory. <laughs> and so, uh, that 
was pretty much um, the way the jazz scene was in Europe at that time. It's in a very interesting contrast to um, what was going on in America in the sense that they were still turning their backs on the audience in America, but in Europe they were so appreciated and so adored and so idolized. Um, this was the music that was being played on the radio constantly, just like we now hear the Beatles and and all the rock and roll music and all the country and western. It was only jazz, almost. The music you heard the most, except for classical jazz, uh, classical music, of course, was jazz. You heard Ellington and Count Basie because we couldn't see these people during the war, and so. Um, and it was so freeing for Europeans in general who are uh, a little bit um, formal and um, frightened to be free. And it, it was a very democratic art form. And we saw it as an art form. Whereas in America, these people and their talents were just being thrown away and treated like servants, really. Um, and so when I saw saw Stan um, in this setting in America, um, I didn't have any of the prejudices that people in this country have about black and white, because to me, jazz symbolized democracy. Hmm. Um, hmm. I was totally colorblind. In fact, I think Sweden and France also were a little bit almost reversely discriminatory in the fact that um, my first book that my father gave, I had two wonderful, intelligent parents. And the first, one of the first books that I read was Uncle Tom's Cabin that I thought was a real story. Now, later I found out that it was a constructive story based on reality. But I wanted to travel to America and be kind to Uncle Tom. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's how Swedes were. I and, dig, and, I dig, I dig. And, and the first time that I saw a black person was an adopted girl in my school from uh, Ethiopia who was so beautiful, and she was adopted by one of the leading entertainers in Sweden, a very handsome debonair person who also was politically very aware. And we all prayed to God at night that we could look like her. So I came from a totally different environment. So now I got off on something. No, you're. you're I did, first of all, I, I, like I told, we're talking to Monica Getz here on the Jake Feinberg show, and and you are like a poet. But there's no right or wrong answers here. Stan looked like a Harvard medical student. Yet I want to go back to this philosophy. Well, first of all, here's the thing. I want you to break this down because we'll get into it later. Maybe not in this session. This this um uh. I'm trying to square this circle because Stan grew up with, um, uh, he grew up in the, in the ghettos of the Bronx. No, 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 no. A misconception. He, he grew up um, in the Bronx, but he was born in Philadelphia, south side of Philadelphia. You know, but let, let, me just ask, let me ask you my, I want to ask this question, and then you can, you can, yeah. you can go on your, uh, you know, I, sure. you know he, was, he, he grew up poor. His father had a very hard time finding work. That's why he had to Absolutely go, he true. had to go he on. He had to go on the road with Tea Garden because he was making more money in one month than his dad might make all year. Okay, so he was on the road True. with Tea Garden. But he didn't have to go 
but he wanted to oh, go. He you wanted can imagine to a, a, a talented young um, musician in those days. It would be like when he got um, a chance to go with Tea Garden would have been like any teenager should today um having an invitation to go with the rolling stones you know it's just it's just one of those breathtaking opportunities that he took but i don't think he had his mother been home that day when the father gave him permission to go because the father saw the benefit in this financially um i don't think she would have let him go well let me because, i just want to i want to i just want to ask you because big bev his mom his mom was no, that wasn't Big Bev. That was his wife, his first wife. Yeah, that's right. No, his, his, his mom his, was Goldie. Goldie, thank you. Goldie his put a lot. Polsky, in order. Nice Jewish lady from. Um, both were immigrants, father and mother from Ukraine, straight out of Filler of the Roof. Sure, the no, total gypsy Jews. I, I mean, it's beautiful. And and what I'm getting at is that Goldie, in order to escape, even though he was born in Philadelphia. I, I interviewed uh, Red Press. You know Red Press? No. Okay, so he, he was a Broadway contractor, and he played in this sex, saxophone sextet with, with Stan when he was 13 and Alan Greenspan, the formal, former Fed chair. I know. Isn't it humorous? So, so the point is that in order to escape the, 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 where he lived as a Jew, yeah. as a Jew he ha- Goldie, may, he had to be perfect. The first, the first concert he ever played in, he peed in his pants when he was young because yeah, of state. Yeah, he yeah. had to be perfect. Did some yeah. of this perfection? He was obviously a genius. I mean, I mean, there was nobody that when you put the horn to his mouth, the sequencing of the ideas that came out, the tone, it it was incredible. But yet there was also this tortured soul component, and I want you to try to talk to the audience as it relates to addiction, and then the man that you fell in love with, the genius. Versus the tortured soul of Stan, and maybe an example. How how you how you how you discovered this, and, and how it how you made sense of it, because you guys were married for many years. Oh, we were married for uh, years, uh, many decades, decades. Um, yeah, decades. Uh, and we were each other's love of our lives. We were so compatible in so many ways, coming from completely different worlds. Um. So, um, what was your question? Yes. I want you to talk to the audience. The family moved. Now I know where you're going. Uh The family moved from Philadelphia, where they have a relatively comfortable, nice Jewish life, to the Bronx because this was during the Depression and there wasn't enough work for his wonderful, earnest, non-drinking, sweet father and his mother who interestingly enough, was a nice Jewish girl. Neither one of them um, did anything that was beyond the ordinary Jewish, wonderful family life. They brought up the son, who I don't know if he started out being a musical genius. I think he was just a perceptively intuitive genius, and I'll explain what I mean by that. His first musical experience, he told me himself, mm. was when um, some salesman in the Bronx, and now this is not the Bronx we know today, you see. This was the Bronx of um, many wonderful people, Greenspan and people who have grown up to be decent human beings. Colin Powell lived in that neighborhood. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. I just want to say and one thing. Well, before you go on, I, when I, I went to, to, to interview Red Press, who is a decorated Broadway 
um, uh, concert. Uh, he, uh, brilliant cat, and he told me because he grew up with Stan, and the Italian and the uh, the Italian kids and would come over and beat the crap out of the Jewish kids. It was very rough, rough, very rough area. I just wanted to say that it was they they had yeah. It, it was rough because they were all so poor, but it was not rough in the sense that it is today. There weren't guns. That's true. There weren't. There wasn't heroin on the street. There mm. really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was rough, but it was a different kind of sweet, innocent rough. Okay, it's horrible that the Italians were beating up the Jewish kids. I don't <laughs> think. Yeah, uh, I don't think that that um, uh, that happened to Stan. It was rough in the sense that everybody was very poor, but it was sweet in another sense, that the mothers hung out the windows, and if they saw their kids getting into trouble, they would call each other, jungle telegram, you better hold in your kid, you know, I look, it looks like he might be getting into trouble. It was a whole other um, Bronx than you see today. Today it looks like a war zone, and you can hardly, you know, when Stan was 50 years old, uh, CBS did some kind of a compilation of his life and they went to his birthplace and I gathered the kids around the television I said you're going to see where dad grew up and as kids are they get distracted and then after the program was over our youngest son Nikki said mom did he grow up in the garbage dump <laughs> because <laughs> it wasn't as nice and as bourgeois as it really was rough yes but they one touching thing about that neighborhood was that they had something called um, Macintosh Welfare Association or something like that. And as poor as they were, they had a welfare association for people who were even poorer than they were. Now, you don't see that in the Bronx today, but no, you're, it, you're, you're absolutely, they had you're, an I just ethos want... and an ethic yes. that was just yeah. wonderful. And it was Franklin D. Roosevelt and Hope came into it, and I came became compatible because... I grew up thinking of America as the Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, America, which was all for good and all anti-Hitler and all anti-discrimination. And it was a wonderful time, even though he was poor. And I was uh, undeservedly privileged, and I wasn't royalty. It's called nobility, and I almost like that word better because it implies not bossiness, but it implies some kind of uh, obligation of being as kind and as good as you can. The word noble is so much nicer than royalty somehow sounds to me like pretense. This is what I... I, 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 This is just compelling. I I just wonder, do you believe... Go back to the intuitive part. I feel like in my own world, as a broadcaster... Uh, doing primary source interviews, intuition is a huge part of my genius. Now, can you explain? Mm. Stan, Stan was not like um, Stan was brilliant, but he was not like like a verbose academia academia kind oh, of. No, thing. I mean, no, so, no, so, I mean, no. I want you to talk specifically about the kind of genius that your husband was. Okay, I can do that. So I started. Uh, I. <laughs> Uh, I'm probably confusing the audience, but I started out by saying that I don't think he was a musical genius as such. Um, you know, you hear of the prodigies that the parents put them at the... Absolutely. 
at the piano at age one and they performed miracles. No. Um, his first musical experience was one of those salesmen that go around selling uh, harmonicas in the neighborhood. Absolutely. And his only purpose was to make a sale. And so he remembers sitting on the stoop with his mom that he adored. He adored his mom. She was a very good, wonderful, and intelligent, humorous person. And she adored Stan also. And so she sat on the stoop, poor as they were, but Stan was never aware of feeling poor at all. He just thought the rest of the world was just like them. Mm-hmm. And so he sat, he sat on the stoop with his mom, and somebody came by and shoved a harmonica into his mouth. And he didn't even know what was going on. And the salesman who wanted to make a sale said, blow. And so Stan made the sound. And, oh, he said, your son has talent, Mrs. K. And Goldie, who who just, the son sat and rose on Stan, uh, wanted to hear this. So, of course, she, she paid the money that she couldn't afford to buy that harmonica. And he played it. And that was the time when you, you referred to that he peed in his pants. She had bought him beautiful white, impeccable pants, and she was so proud of him. And he was performing then at the school, whatever event. And all of a sudden, all the ladies that were there, other mothers started to giggle, and she didn't know what that was all about. And then she saw to her mortification that there were certain areas of these white pants that started started to turn yellow. <laughs> but she kept saying, keep playing, Stan, you know. <laughs> Don't leave the stage, keep playing, defiantly. And he, mortified, didn't know what else to do, so he kept playing. But he loved telling that story. Do you think, though, that, so, that in some well, way... Wait, wait. Yeah, go so, on. So, oh. so let me just finish this thought, because Please. otherwise we jump from too many things. <laughs> Next time... He went to the Monroe High School, I think it was called, and the gym teacher there uh, was also the head of the orchestra. Such a random thing. So he goes around the room, because Stan was very interested in becoming uh, the new Babe Ruth. He was in love with Babe Ruth, everything that Babe Ruth stood for, and they would... um, climb, take the streetcar to the stadium and, and, and they would climb over the fence because they didn't have the money to just take a glimpse of Babe Ruth. So he wanted to become Babe Ruth. And the gym teacher went around the room in a half a circle and he needed people for his orchestra. So we just randomly pointed out and you were going to play this and you. And it so happened that Stan was going to play the contrabass, right? So he comes home with this huge instrument and um, he loved telling the story uh, how his mother said, it's either you or that thing in this house. There's not room for both of you. So then he had to get a smaller instrument, and he started on, <clears throat> oh, wait a minute. Um, what is the name of that instrument, which is in little tubes and a very narrow um, air entrance into it? Yeah, I was, I was, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was, um, you went from harmonica. Swedish is called forgot, har- but har- I harmonica don't... to arco bass to bass. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was a, a wind instrument in between that. It's a rare instrument. It's a beautiful instrument, but oh, very, ba- very hard. Oh, to play. oh, bassoon. Yeah, bassoon. Yeah, got it. No, no, not bassoon. Even harder to play than a bassoon. It has t- two tubes that runs down. 
well, I'll think of it in a moment. But anyway, he played that instrument for a while. And then eventually, just by accident, a series of accidents and flukes, did his father buy in a pawn shop a green-looking alto sax. That was his first sax instrument. Mm -hmm. And then um, eventually, through his own um, musical taste, he chose to move from the alto sax to the tenor sax because he always said it's the closest thing to the human voice. But you would never guess what he would have liked to have been taught from the beginning, and that is piano. He said because he always heard in his head chords and interesting, complicated movements and on the saxophone, you can only play a note at a time. But he always heard all kinds of other music in his head, and he felt very restricted by the saxophone. But at the same time, he was conflicted because he did love the sound of the saxophone, and he wor always worked on that sound. But he was very shy and very modest when I met him, very introverted. He did offer, uh, he was smitten for you, though. He did invite you to come to a later... Oh, he was, he was... He, he was inviting you to a, a later jam session. If I, He said, come with me. Like after, Listen to this. Go ahead. This is so funny. We're leaving, this young student and I, to take a taxi. Neither one of us had cars. Back to Georgetown that night. First of all, I met him in the intermission, and I had with me a book written by Thornton Wilder called The Bridge of San Luis Rey. And, um, you know, my eyes fill with tears when I think of this. And I didn't want to interfere, so I just sat in the back of the so-called the green room where the boys were interviewing all the various musicians, not just Stan. But, and when Stan heard that I was from Sweden and he had this really lovely experience in Sweden, it was his first time out of the country after the war, and he had landed in a small town at the airport, and it was drizzly and gray as it only can be in Sweden. And he peers out the window, had never been treated like a celebrity in his entire life, and there is a man in a, um, what is that kind of a hat called that people, bankers have in London? Um, <laughs> Top hat? You know, the, I, don't, I don't know. No, not even the top hat. It's round on the top. Well, anyway, mm -hmm. very formal man standing with a bunch of um, uh, tulips, a huge bouquet of tulips in his hands. And so he's looking behind him to see maybe Marilyn Monroe was in the back of the plane or something. <laughs> and he just couldn't, couldn't figure it out. And there was a whole bunch of kids on the platform there in the rain. And so the door opens up, and here's like, oh, if he were the Beatles, you know, these kids just yelled and screamed and he felt like a celebrity for the very first time in his life. That was his visit. That night, season. that night. Yeah. That yeah. is amazing. Yeah. That is and truly. He was now, a, he, uh, he, he was an accomplished musician. He had played with all these wonderful people, Tea Garden, uh, um, Goodman. Well, let's um, let's be very clear about this. One thing that I've loved as I've studied your husband's career is that uh, the dude 
the 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 LPs that he made with Dizzy and Sonny Stitt in the fifties is the best bebop music I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it it, it is it is, and I interviewed Steve Gadd, a great drummer. He said. He said that he can't stop listening, and maybe, hopefully, one day, me and you can listen to this together. I've never heard it actually. 1953, so it was. Uh, it, it's Oscar Peterson, Herb Ellis, Ray Brown, and Stan Getz, drummerless quartet. Oscar Peterson trio plus Stan Getz. It's some of the most burning music in the world. So yet he hadn't reached quote unquote stardom, but he was firmly implanted within the community of jazz and respected all the way around. But he did it. so perceptive because this is exactly what was happening. Dizzy told me before he died, Stan was already dead. Dizzy and I became really good friends because Dizzy and Dizzy's wife and I were kind of soulmates. I, I just loved, she was elderly at the time. I was very young. But we were both spiritual searchers and uh, so Dizzy and I became very close by that virtue. And he said he always loved Stan from the moment he met him as a young um, buck, but not really a buck in that sense, very shy person at Birdland at one of these jam sessions. And he said, Monica, I want you to know this, that you hear the kids talk today all about even when he, Dizzy was alive, the word cool was like everywhere. And he said, you know who started that? And I said, no. Uh, he said, Stan ever told you? I said, no. He said, maybe Stan wasn't even aware of it. But it started, I am convinced, at Birdland. We were doing some of these jam sessions. Bird was there. Miles was there. I was there. And here was this kid and he came in in the jam session, took charge, and he was one of us old men. He just outplayed us all. It just took our breath away. And so I took it upon myself to encourage him, and I said something that I thought was really flattering. I said, man, he said, Stan, that was really hot, because in those days there was the hot jazz from Paris, and that, there was the key words jazz had to be hot and Stan so <laughs> shyly and quietly said no 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 it's cool <laughs> and they all thought they broke up laughing and they all thought that was so cute and he, 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 he said that I know that Miles got that word and the concept from that little phrase from Stan at that time and when none of them were really um they were famous in the jazz world, but they weren't famous in the larger world. And Stan was always a musician's musician. So uh, I'm so interested that you love that Oscar Peterson trio because personally, yeah. Herb Albus, uh, Ellis, um, uh, Ray Brown, and Oscar were so in tune with Stan. They had the same sense of humor. They had the same... Uh, intellect they just loved each other like brothers and i remember when we were touring uh the world really with jazz at the philharmonic and oscar's group was in the same band oscar would do funny things like all of a sudden he wanted to shock the band and this is the day before you had red hair he 
found in a joke shop a wig with bright Christmas red hair. And he started to play, you know, in the concert, and they came on, and he wanted to break up the band, but they had they had figured out in advance what he was up to, so none of them cracked, and the only one who broke up laughing was Oscar. Well, it may not sound so funny to you, but no, I no, no. I mean, the point. I mean, I just I'm trying to find this quote because I I interviewed this is Steve Gadd from uh, uh, earlier this year. And I, this was one of my, I'll send you this interview too. He said, I've been listening to this session with Stan Getz, Oscar Peterson, Ray Brown, and Herb Ellis. There was no drums, but it was burning or hot. Stan was on fire. The whole band was on fire. I mean, yeah. and, and this is something he can't take out of his CD player in his car. I, you know, we, I want that was a mutual love between them also, you see. It was it love. Was it, was love. it was love. It was love. This yeah. is, what it, it, it was love. Yeah, it was love. Love. They loved each other. They never had it. You know, Stan was a very difficult person. They never had as much as a disagreement about anything. They just loved each other. Can you, can you talk to the audience about um, what it was like for you to go back and see um, uh, Big Bev horribly addicted to drugs. The fact is that you and Stan were starting your own life, but you had to go back and, and actually go to court to get custody of his three children because Big Bev was so uh, addicted to, to heroin. And and I wanted you to just take us through that personally for you, what it meant, how how you and Stan worked that out. Because from what I can gather, that was not going to be you guys were going to move either you, yeah. you know and yeah, I, we had already moved this is this is the story and it's sad at the same time as it's encouraging because it was the beginning of me having to learn about addiction which i had no clue about nor did anyone in sweden at the time and very few people in this country if any yeah aa had figured it out bill bill wilson in aa movement had figured it out but no one else, I don't think. And that was really revolutionary for America in 1935. There was no place that people had an addiction problem could go and get help. Right. But that's an aside. So um, when I met Stan, I didn't think, I didn't understand that he had a history of addiction because when I met him, he was, as I said, scared straight. So he was clean and sober. And he didn't tell, that first day that we met was only cursory, and I never got to finish that either, because I... No, we're going to, listen, this is only set one, we're going to tell, we're going to finish these stories very (laughs) soon, don't worry. It's part of my book. Anyway, so, um, what's happened that night, we were in the green room, Uh, I was sitting in the back of the room. I was reading Thornton Wilder, who eventually turned out to be a big fan of Stan's and used to come in in Boston all the time to talk with us. Um, I was reading his book called uh, The Bridge of a San Louis Ray. Um, I was expecting that it was going to be boring, and I didn't even expect to meet Stan. Somehow they mentioned these young friends of mine from school mentioned that I was a foreign student from Sweden. Stan had that triggered something in him because he had had the happiest moment in his life 
in Sweden. And I didn't even begin to go into that, how he discovered young musicians and how they helped him over his addiction for the first time. He was straight and sober in Sweden because they realized that they had to help him there. So that had many, many connotations for him, um, that visit to Sweden. It wasn't just that he was treated like a celebrity for the first time, but he also regained his health there for the first time. Which, so, musi- which musician? This is, okay, so I don't want you, I don't want you to worry about, because we're, we're going to go back and finish. Well, one the- of the musicians was uh, Bengt Heilberg, who was a, a pianist, genius pianist in Sweden who was only a high school kid then hmm. because he Stan came over uh, alone so he didn't have a rhythm section with him so they tried to gather the best possible rhythm, rhythm section the bass player was the piano player was Bengt Halberg um, the bass player was a person called Gunnar Jansson um, they had another saxophone player that helped him call Eric Norberg. Um, so anyway, they helped him um, get over the addiction. He immediately said, call the doctor and tell him to give me morphine. Well, that's not possible in Sweden. So he had to sort of go cold turkey. Wow. Um, wow. And they helped him through that. So he was sober the whole time in Sweden, and he discovered that wonderful song, you see, Stan is an intuitive person, as I mentioned, and his culture has been very parallel, the Jewish culture. I don't need to tell you of suffering, and you're talking about tortured soul. He really wasn't a tortured soul in that sense, because I think the addiction kept him sort of in a constant dream world, but intuitively from just the Jewishness and listening to the cantor and the minor keys in his synagogue, and I think through his genes, he was ultra, ultra Jewish without being religious. I don't know how I can say that, but... No, you're nailing it. It's called spiritualism. There was a deep spirit, Jewish spiritualism. Yeah, he was very, but not spiritualism. He was very spiritual. I I know there are very fine lines here, but he was was truly spiritual. I completely understand. And I was truly spiritual from another background because I had um, a mother and grandmother who... um, I don't even want to go into it, but we were predisposed to just uh, uh, have a happy life together because we were both deeply spiritual, um, that heart comes before money every time. And so um, he really, um, he really, really, I heard in your interviews that it's so much talk about black and white musicians and, and, and all of that. I didn't experience that so much. I was shocked when I came here and musicians had to stay in different hotels. I couldn't even believe it. And to Stan's credit, he stopped that very quickly when it came to his band. But in the beginning, when I went to the South with him, that's how it was. It was medieval. But within the jazz community, there was so much... Um, complete acceptance. There was not black and white thinking that I can remember. 
and there wasn't even discrimination when it came to homosexuality. I know there was a wonderful violinist who was openly uh, homosexual, and everybody respected the hell out of him and loved him and ex accepted him completely the way he was. So I think jazz represents to me so many things of truly lack of discrimination. It didn't matter if you were black or white as long as you could play. I want I want this is so important. Uh what hit you what was the most the the first thing that you really understood about addiction when you saw Big Bev when you had to get those kids and they hadn't changed their clothes in days and they were eating junk food and I mean what 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 do okay. you still remember This is how it was. Yeah. This is how it was. I was naive and uh Stan said he could never go back to that life and then what happened was um, that I met the children, and I could see that they had suffered. But I liked Big Bev, and I didn't understand that she was addicted, you know? So I tried to um, set her up. I talked Stan's parents into giving up. By that time, they had, um, that's another touching thing. When they moved to Long Island from the Bronx, it was Stan whose money that enabled them to do that. And they got a wonderful little garden apartment in Bayside, New York, for $97. I'll never forget it because we ended up living in it. $97. Oh, what a, a deal. Month. What a deal. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of money you spent on a nice little apartment in Bayside in those days. Anyway, so um, I, said, I talked to parents out of that apartment, and we bought them a sort of a step-up apartment in Floral Park, which is also Queens, but it was just much nicer. And to have Beverly start out, who had by that time been in an, a car accident, she had gone with her connection. Well, Stan was in jail. She lived with her connection. I don't think there was anything sexual going on there, but she lived with her connection because she was so deeply dependent. And I think she only became dependent after her brother, Herbie Stewart, died. Right. She was so despondent that she just, um, and it's been said that Stan put her onto drugs. I do not believe that. I believe that she was so despondent because he was the only guiding light in his life. Uh, in her life that she wanted to just kill the pain. And there was so much ignorance about addiction. So th this was the way jazz musicians, some of them, not all of them, coped. And it was around then because of Stan, I guess. So I guess the availability was there, and that might have been Stan's fault. But I don't think that he put her onto it. Well, either way, it. it becomes like a communal thing where when when, yeah. they, when they were living in Topanga Canyon, they were both using and uh, the kids were playing in the pool. So, I mean, the, there, there was, but, you know, uh, listen. We, anyway, I, yeah, I, I want to go on from there. Go ahead, yeah. So what go happened ahead. is I was ignorant. I tried to um, send her to, 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 to uh, um, the dentist. She had no teeth. Her, she just had little stumps because she'd been chewing on um, dexedrines, which was very popular in those days, brown bags of dexedrine she had. And then she would drink to go to sleep. I didn't put the, I didn't put it all together. I thought maybe this is how jazz musicians live. I didn't understand it. And so I tried to send her to the dentist. She never would show up for the appointments. I tried to 
drive her everywhere because she, she 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 was afraid of driving. Uh, I tried to um, set her up then in this apartment with the children. I never had would ever think of taking children away from a mother, so I wanted to help her so, as much as possible. So we set her up in that apartment. And then Stan and I moved to um, Los Angeles, and we lived in Beverly Hills in a little apartment, too, with a pool, and very happily, and we get a phone call from Goldie, who lived in New York, and said, Stan, you've got to come back here immediately. Those kids are starving, and Stan thought that the mother was being overly dramatic, and so I said, Stan, you have to go back, and he flew back, and he, his breath was just lost because the kids were in this little garden apartment. Big Bev was passed out. There were bottles everywhere, men sleeping on the floor. Not men that were involved with her necessarily, but men who... Just flunkies, because, oh, yeah. Yeah, and they, they lived off the monies that Stan sent to her because oh. he's, he was generous. You yeah, know, he absolutely. wasn't... So, absolutely, yeah. And so the money didn't go to the kids, which it was meant for. The, the, the refrigerator was empty. That was just a can of beer sometimes. But what happened was the children didn't go to school. They sat in the bedroom and watched the late show, the late, late show, and, 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 and the later Johnny show. Carson or whatever <laughs> who was on Steve. I think it was Steve Allen in those days. Sure, sure. And, and uh, the baby's diapers weren't changed, and they weren't getting their bottles, and it was, nobody was going to school. It was totally unsupervised stuff. So Stan was just shocked. And so he called me, and he said, you know, could you consider coming back to New York and helping to take care of the children? What, what, what was I going to say? No, mm-hmm. these were irresistible children. They were adorable. So um, he, what happened was, that meanwhile, after he made that phone call and asked if I could consider just coming in to help out, Tony Frischella, who was Stan's trumpet payer, was one of those people who slept on the floor, got arrested in the apartment. And I don't, I've never been clear if Beverly got arrested too, but the two of them just took off and left the children. And so now the government moved in to take over the children. It became like uh, a crisis because Stan had a recent and well-published prison record and uh, was maligned. And I wanted to say that about this quickly, that robbing the drugstore wasn't as dramatic as all that. He had put a finger, a handkerchief over a finger and asked her for some morphine just to get over the withdrawal thing and she called the police at that time i can't blame the drugstore lady then stan felt terrible when he got back to the hotel called up and apologized to trace the call and then uh, a terrible scene ensued where the police busted uh, you know busted him in the mouth and with blood all over himself and was dragged in handcuffs and those pictures were just publicized all over america but um that's another story but it wasn't as if he went in with a gun, I don't think he would. I don't know. I can't say what he ever would do or wouldn't do because addiction is so unpredictable. But um, this is at least what he told me. And then when he was arrested, he was thrown cold turkey. In um, the, He was transferred from Seattle, where all of this happened, into extradited to L.A., and LAPD did not have such a great reputation at that time. So they didn't give a hoot what happened to him. So he almost 
died from withdrawal symptoms, and then he had a bunch of tuinols they had in those days, pills, and he took them and was about to suffocate, and I think with the intention to kill himself. And so in the jail, they cut his throat open and gave him a tracheotomy and saved his life. And then he wrote very touching letters to his audience uh, and to Downbeat, I think, um, saying that he really was apologetic and um, calling himself a degenerate for doing this and promising to involve himself in AA, which he unfortunately didn't do at that time. It would have changed history. But jail straightened him out enough so that when I saw him, he was his very best self. So that we have been cooking here with Monica Getz for 57 minutes. Can we can we pick up a, do part two on Thursday? I, we have quite a bit more to cover. On Thursday, um, or even let next. Me get, yeah, yeah. Let me be, get back to you because I also feel like 57 minutes. Did it go so fast? Well, no, and, and what I'm saying is, it, I'm. I'm this is so enjoyable, and we have we're, we really are going to have to do multiple parts. So, um, yeah, we just exactly. My, I take you out of your mindset, and then you fly away. So, um, yeah. I send you this later today, uh, and I okay. and I call you tomorrow, and we'll figure it out. Okay, very interesting, and you ask very interesting questions, and you're very knowledgeable. Thank you, Monica. Okay. Thank you, and I'll say, right. I say, yeah, enjoy the interview. You listen to all three. I can send you more if you want. Um, I'll. Send me what you think is interesting. The one thing I wanted to say, which you must remind me of, yes. is that concert. Lester Young was at that concert. And what I couldn't comprehend was that Lester, who played at least as beautiful as Stan, never got the attention that um, Stan did, of course, because of that uh, standing ovation before he played a note. But even... Uh, George Shearing or, or Sarah Wong or Eric Garner, he never got the recognition and always ate at Stan with these poles. He won all these poles, and he felt that it's something not right about this, that artists should be pitted against each other when we have such geniuses and they're not recognized. It shouldn't be popularity contest. It it just shouldn't be. So well, we have a lot more. We have a lot. We have well, we that and a whole lot more with Monica Getz. What an honor! Uh, it's so nice to hear your voice. And uh, we'll okay, talk. well, this was fun. Yeah. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye.